And so I invite you to be seated. And so we find ourselves on Palm Sunday, a week away from the joy and the celebration of Easter. But between the joy of today and the joy of a week from today, there's a heck of a journey in the middle. I want to be sure that you know that we have two special services this week to help continue the story and experience the whole of Christ's journey from today to the cross, to the tomb, and to resurrection. On Thursday evening at 7 o'clock here at the church downstairs in the Fellowship Hall, we are having a service on Holy Thursday that remembers Jesus' final meal with his disciples, his last supper. And we'll do so with something to drink and something to eat with music coming from the Tizé community in France and the scripture that reminds us of the story. It will be downstairs, but we will have it live streamed as well. So we encourage you, if you're watching online or if you're not able to make it in person on Thursday, to still go ahead and join us online. And if you'd like to participate in the eating and drinking, grab some bread, some grape juice, or things similar to join us in that special service. And then on Friday, Good Friday, the day that we remember Jesus' death on the cross, we are hosting the Manchester Community Good Friday service here in the sanctuary at 7 o'clock. It'll be led by the community clergy um, as we go through the entire story of Jesus' arrest, trial, torture, and crucifixion. Uh, It is bound to be a a meaningful service uh, with some powerful music to boot, and so encourage you to join us for that, uh, whether that's in person or online. And then Easter, next Sunday, 10.30 a.m., our normal worship time, and it's going to be a jubilant celebration of resurrection. We're going to have special music and communion, a special interactive children's time. It's just going to be a wonderful, uh, joyous celebration. So I encourage you to come back next Sunday as well. But first, getting ahead of myself, Palm Sunday. Let us pray. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. My first and most significant foray, and only foray, into community activism happened when I was in the third grade. I was eight years old. I was in Mrs. Johnson's class where I was happily learning math and science and history and reading, and everything was just as good as it could be except for one problem. I could not sit with all of my friends at lunch. Some of them, sure, but not all of them, because the entire third grade across the entire elementary school ate lunch in the cafeteria at the same time every day, but there was a rule that you had to sit at the table which was assigned to your particular teacher and your particular classroom which meant that you were never able to sit and eat with friends who were in different teachers' classrooms. It may not have been a violation of the Geneva Convention, but it did rather feel like an infringement on our inalienable rights as third graders, now so grown and responsible, no longer childish second graders. So a plan started to emerge. We would petition for our right to eat with our friends. Our teacher was supportive, No doubt seeing a civic lesson playing out in real life. And so myself and two friends spent several days worth of free time huddled over a counter in the back corner of the classroom working on shaping our petition into a letter. We wrote this letter on loose leaf paper in cursive because we just learned cursive. And we carefully tried to put words to our position. And I remember in particularly out of the three of us, I fretted the most over the particular phrasing and word selection. 
I was the most concerned out of the three of us that the letter had to be polite and respectful and not at all disruptive. And when it was done, we took this letter to our classroom and then to the neighboring classroom. We presented it to our peers and invited them to sign it. They all did, because apparently sitting with your friends at lunch is a very popular idea. And then we took this letter with all those signatures to the principal, Mrs. Heimerdinger, and I was worried that we may have come across too strong, worried that we may have miscalculated the letter and how it would be received, worried until the day that we heard the exciting news. It had worked. We would be able to sit anywhere in the cafeteria. And it was a marvelous victory for about a week until lunchtime got too loud and disruptive with open seating, so we were told, and the rules reverted back to seating assigned by teacher. And so what did we do then? Absolutely nothing. We had made a valiant effort through the appropriate channels. We had made our case respectfully and properly, and now we could go no further. Because at eight years old, I had still picked up this belief that world-changing efforts need to be done the right way. They need to work within the system, and they need to stop before it gets disruptive. All this is to say that had I been there on that Palm Sunday when Jesus had entered into Jerusalem, whether I was eight years old or the age that I am now, when I was there, if I were there with rejoicing shouts of the crowd, I am fairly certain that I would have been standing with the Pharisees who said to Jesus, Teacher, scold your disciples. Tell them to stop. Things were getting out of hand and rather disruptive. The entrance into Jerusalem, Palm Sunday, and that story is told in every one of the four Gospels, though with some variations between the accounts. For instance, it is only the Gospel of John that specifies that the crowd that day waved and laid palm branches there in the parade. Matthew and Mark only refer to branches cut from trees, while in the Gospel of Luke doesn't even mention branches of any sort at all. Now, our natural tendency can be to fold all four of these stories together into a single account. Jesus rode in on a donkey, the crowd waved palm branches, but this can flatten out the unique details each gospel writer uses to tell the story in a particular way. Every one of the four gospels reaches back to the same history, to the same Jesus who was physically present on earth, and yet each of the writers of these four gospels uses the details as a master storyteller to shape their unique presentation of the gospel. This is why there are four gospels, for they share the same gospel, but in different ways, and the differences are important. We can learn something valuable by pulling a single voice out of the chorus, by stepping out of the story as we have melded it together and into the one that is before us today from the gospel of Luke. As the blended account of Palm Sunday is often told it was the religious leaders who opposed Jesus, the ones who would later be behind his arrest and crucifixion, that come blustering in and insist that Jesus quiet his followers. But that's not how Luke tells the story. As Jesus approached the road leading down from the Mount of Olives, Luke says, he was flanked by a massive crowd of disciples, hundreds of faithful followers who had journeyed with him across the countryside and who were now rejoicing at this scene emerging before them. And it was from this crowd of disciples, of faithful followers, that some Pharisees emerged. Teacher, they said, scold your disciples. Tell them to stop. Biblical interpretation over the years has developed an unfortunate and unwarranted negative stereotype 
of Pharisees. While they are often presented in contrast to Jesus, the Pharisees are not Jesus' ideological opposite. And it is actually their overall agreement with Jesus that so highlights their moments of difference. Paul, who authors so much of the New Testament, all, almost all, excuse, at least a majority of the letters coming in the New Testament, Paul was a Pharisee. And there are so many indications throughout the four Gospels that there were many, many Pharisees who followed Jesus during his lifetime, including at least a few Pharisees that day on Palm Sunday who went with Jesus to Jerusalem, a few who were among the throng of fellow disciples when their teachers stepped on a donkey and began ambling down the streets over jackets and coats laid over the road while the crowd burst into unprompted rejoicing. It was these Pharisees, these faithful followers of Christ who came to their teacher and said, Teacher, scold your disciples. Tell them to stop. They were not adversaries trying to diminish their opposition. They were not city leaders trying to keep a hold on their power and authority. They were some of Jesus' own supporters who could read the situation all too well and were starting to get worried for everyone's safety. Because it was Passover in Jerusalem. And Passover in Jerusalem was a dangerous time. At Passover, faithful Jews would gather together to retell the most fundamental story of their faith, the story of their rescue from oppression in Egypt, where they had been cruelly mistreated at the hands of a ruling empire for centuries. The contemporary parallels were not lost on the leaders of the Roman Empire ruling over the Jews. And while the Roman Empire was content to leave Jerusalem well enough alone most of the year, they took additional precautions at Passover. Extra guards were sent in under the command of a Roman emissary who is charged with keeping the peace by force. The Roman representative that year was a man by the name of Pontius Pilate. He would have entered the city in a parade of his own, designed to intimidate and quell all rebellion. He would have ridden a pure white steed, flanked by a full phalanx of guards in armor and full regalia. Jerusalem at Passover was like a spring-loaded trap ready to crush anyone foolish enough to poke around where they didn't belong. And here comes Jesus, riding into town to the acclaim of a massive crowd, shouting blessings on the King who comes in the name of the Lord. And they weren't talking about Caesar. The Pharisees say something to Jesus because they're trying to protect themselves and the people in the street that day. They're trying to protect the people of Jerusalem and Jewish people everywhere. Once the spring is sprung, there's no telling how far the waves might be felt. The Pharisees have assessed the situation. They have done the math. This is starting to be a battle they can't win. This entrance isn't just a parade. It's a protest. The crowd has performed this sort of verbal coup. They've removed Caesar from his throne and placed Jesus there instead, but they don't have the strength to support their claim. They wield only words and clothes off of their back, maybe palms in their hands. Their king has ridden in on a donkey, a donkey, not a horse. And to boot, it's an untrained, unridden donkey who could barely be expected to make it down the street with a rider on its back for the first time and who would surely buck off its rider if fighting were to break, around, break out around it. The Pharisees are not wrong to worry that this is going to get someone killed and may well ruin everything. And it is to this, to these 
very calm and rational concerns, Jesus says to the Pharisees, I tell you, if the crowd was silent, the stones would shout out. The whole of the Gospel of Luke hints at its culmination in this moment. It's been building up to here and to what is to come. The message, the disciples in the crowd are shouting, blessings on the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heavens. Well, that echoes the song sung by the angels at the birth of a newborn king and a manger at the very start of this gospel. This is what Jesus was born to do, what God has always done to rule over the coming reign of peace. And Luke doesn't hide what a revelation, what a revolution that this is. All throughout the gospel, Luke has Jesus talking about the last and the least and how the kingdom of God is going to flip everything on its head so that those who have been on the outskirts will be on the inside. Those who have nothing will be giving everything in abundance. Those who have known only oppression will taste mercy and justice. And those who have grown comfortable with the injustice of the present age will find themselves suddenly toppled from their thrones. This is what Jesus was born to do, what God has always done and what was built into the very fabric of creation itself. If the disciples do not cry out, Jesus says, the very rocks will disturb the peace with their shouts as they clamor for the world that God created it to be. It will wreak havoc, to be sure, this shouting from disciples or rocks, but love can be costly like that, and it's worth the cost to shout for the liberation and freedom of one another and for ourselves. For as the Pharisees may have come to realize in their redirection from Jesus to justify our inaction and calloused hearts by pointing to a society that threatens to overwhelm and crush anyone who steps out of line is just another way of aligning ourselves with all those too comfortable with the status quo of injustice. If the disciples did not cry out, Jesus says, the rocks themselves would. And throughout the years of history, the song has continued, sometimes by creation, aching for the world God intended it to live in, and sometimes by those who follow God, aching for the day and reign of peace. It was in the days following Palm Sunday in 1963, during the course of Holy Week, that there was a parade of sorts held in Birmingham, Alabama. But the parade was held without a permit, a permit that would not be given because the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. asked for it. And so those who were aching and crying out for racial justice in 1963 were arrested and put in jail. And it was while Martin Luther King Jr. was in jail that a letter was written and published in a newspaper at the time from a group of moderate mainline Christians asking, couldn't you silence your disciples just for a moment? This group of bishops and pastors wrote, we recognize the natural impatience of people who feel that their hopes are slow in being realized, but we are convinced that these demonstrations are unwise and untimely. Teacher, said the Pharisees, can't you quiet your disciples? Can't you still the crowd? This might get dangerous for all of us. It was to this letter that Martin Luther King Jr. 
wrote a letter of his own, one that has been held up as a just peak explanation of nonviolent protest in all of the years since. It's the one in which he wrote that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, that we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny that whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Because Reverend Dr. King knew that all of creation was reaching out for the coming reign of peace. And those who do not join the song are accidentally left on the side of the reign that is. And Dr. King continued in his letter, and he wrote, There was a time when the church was very powerful. It was during that period that the early Christians rejoiced when they were deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Wherever the early Christians entered a town, the power structure got disturbed and immediately sought to convict them for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But they went on with a conviction that they were a colony of heaven and had to obey God rather than man. Dr. King is referencing the early church, the early church which drew its strength and its story from a parade that was rather a protest on Palm Sunday when the followers of Jesus were not content to let creation cry out for them, but joined in the song seeking justice and mercy and grace for all people. And it would disturb the peace. Somebody would get killed for it but it might still have been worth it. In the Good Enough devotional, Kay Bowler writes, she asks the question, what will good things cost us? And she writes that hope costs us the satisfaction of cynicism, love costs us selfishness, and charity costs us greed. And she goes on to imply it may all be worth it. Doing the right thing, singing the right song, loving like there isn't any consequence when we know that there may well be a consequence. For the story that is to come is God working through what will be. In one of her blessings, she writes, Blessed are you who love people who aren't grateful, the sick who endanger your health, the deeply boring who know you have things to do. Loving people can be the most meaningful thing in the world but can also be hard and scary and boring and disgusting or sad or anxiety-inducing with zero overtime. The story of Palm Sunday may not be that we all must be martyrs, but that love can be costly, that caring can cost us something, but that it's worth it. It's worth it to have the chance to proclaim someone else's liberation, to speak out for our own freedom, to celebrate the coming king who will bring in the reign of peace. It may be worth it to take the song that creation has sung from the beginning, to put it in our own voices, in our own time, to speak the gospel truth, no matter what might come. Friends, may we be a people like that. Thanks be. I invite us all to continue in worship this morning.